Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learnings so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Well, the Stanley Cup Finals just wrapped up, which makes this the perfect time to talk to Brad Richards. He's a two-time winner of the Stanley Cup and the MVP of the 2004 Stanley Cup Finals. And I got to tell you, in the world of hockey, he is Mr. Clutch. He has a perfect 8-0 record in Game 7 play, which is something no other hockey player has ever done in the history of the game. And get this, he set a record for the most game-winning goals in a single playoff season, scoring seven of them. Brad consistently knows how to perform in clutch situations, which is a quality every leader needs, whether you're on the ice or in the office. And when you listen to this conversation, you're going to see why. Brad's an even-killed guy, and he knows how to put his head down and work hard. And all that effort and preparation gives him the confidence that he's ready to step up and deliver in the big moments. Now, look, you may not be skating out on the ice with the Stanley Cup on the line, but I can guarantee you, if you lead, you're going to face high-pressure situations where you got to come to the game and give it your best. Listen to this conversation and learn how to walk into situations like this with confidence because you know how to trust the hard work that you've put in. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Brad Richards. Brad, it's great to have you on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure being here. Tell us something about playing in the Stanley Cup you would only know if you played in it. Obviously, it's a dream when you get there. Um, you, you don't realize, I think the first time, you don't realize how big um, it is for the media, uh, the media day, um, all the other stuff you have to do for the national TV, all the little photo shoots. Uh, you just want to play hockey, but uh, obviously, you're at the mercy of the, the league and TV, and there's like a day and a half, uh, somewhat like the Super Bowl. Obviously, ours isn't as big as the Super Bowl, but the media day and all that stuff, which I never dreamed of as a kid. I thought, okay, we're here. When do we get to play? Um, but you have to wait two or three days to do all that stuff. And by the end of it, you're, uh, you know, you're, you're like a caged dog trying to get out there and I just want to play the game. Uh, I think that was the biggest eye opener. Uh, you know, it's bigger than just, um, you wanting to go out and, and uh, skate. So it was a lot of fun to adjust to that. And, and as you, I got to go to three of them and as you get older, you kind of just learn to deal with it and, uh, you're, it rolls off the, the back. So you say you're like a caged animal when you're ready to get into those finals, and I, I can see you being that way. Tell us a story from your first experience in the NHL finals in 2004 that you love to tell. Our final that year, we lost the first game. It's a best of seven, and, and we just kept sharing games. So eventually, we knew we had to win two in a row or we weren't going to win. And we lost on home ice in overtime in game five, and, and our coach had a great – he came in, and it was really a tough loss because we had to fly six hours to Calgary – and play them two nights later, and they're going to have all of Canada waiting for them to win the cup and backs against the wall. And we, we were kind of, we were pretty down after that game. And he had a great speech. He, he, he basically said, we're going out there. We're going to have, our family's going to come. We're coming back here. We're going to get everybody set up. We're going to have hotels for our family back here in game seven. And he just started talking like we are coming back for game seven. And, and there was no what ifs and, and, uh, by the end of the meeting, we were all like, okay, we better call our families and get them booked for game seven, <laughs> but we haven't even played game six yet. And it was a great speech, um, kind of get our minds off the tough loss and, and looking at 
what a great opportunity we have to win game six and come back and home ice. And we ended up doing that and, and uh, in double overtime and came back and home ice and won it in front of our family and friends. I love that. Get your families and friends ready. We're coming back. Book the tickets. Yeah. I, I love that. Yeah. You know, Brad, you know, in my, my research, I've learned, and I knew a lot about you before, but, you know, I didn't know this stat, but you, you may be the, the greatest clutch player in the playoffs going an incredible 8-0 in game sevens. Nobody has ever done that in the history of hockey. How did you get up for the big games? I mean, I know it's a team sport, but you were a part of all of them and you were, you know, you were a leader on the team. Well, the first two are very nerve wracking. I was just turned 24. And at that point you think you'll be in a thousand of them and no big deal. You're not really, you know, you want to win them, but you're young and dumb and too stupid to realize the gravity of, of everything that's going on that day. And as you got older, the record kept being mentioned in the media, um, so there was more pressure to keep that uh, undefeated record. But you got older and you knew that um, there's not many of these opportunities anymore. So those were a lot harder to get your rest. It was tough to sleep the night before, really tough to sleep during the day. You always have a nap during the day because 8 o'clock games in the playoffs and you try to have a little nap, but you couldn't do that. You'd be tossing and turning. And I think the biggest thing was trying to get a routine. And, and uh, eventually I found a routine that kept me going a little bit. I'd read a little bit. I'd watch, uh, believe it or not, I watched this comedy show called The Office, the British version um, <laughs> back then. It kind of make me laugh, Ricky Gervais, and kind of get my mind off it. And I kind of kept the same, I'd even keep the same episodes if we won. But that was, that kept me kind of in a routine and it kept me from thinking too far ahead and uh, about all the the failures or bad things that could happen. It kept me in a good frame of mind. And I, I just kind of learned to, to get a routine like that. You know, you know, whether you're on the ice or in the boardroom, Brad, you know, we all have to show up and perform when the pressure really is on. What advice do you have for leaders on how they can better prepare for those big moments? You, you mentioned routine. It's one of the things you did. But is there any other advice you'd give to somebody to say, okay, you got the big game, the big event, the big presentation. Okay, here's how you get ready for it. Yeah, I think obviously if you're in those situations, you've probably put in the work. I would imagine, I would hope so, you've put in the work. And and that's one good thing to lean on if you've done your, you know, in boardroom, whatever you would call it, your practices or your training. And you, you do all that. And once once that's done, um, you got to try to, it, it's hard to say or hard to do, but you, you just got to try to relax and believe that you've put in the work and preparation. You know, in, in the locker room, you trust your teammates or they're they're doing the same thing um and you can help if you if you are a leader or, or you're one of the captains of the team you can help if you're seeing some guys that aren't aren't quite what you think uh doing the right things to be ready for the big game uh, and then you got to go out and, and it, it's execution in, in the end uh you know it, it's again it's hard to do but your your mind has to shut off and you just got to get in the zone and execute and there's all different techniques of that. Some people like to meditate in game days. Like I said, I like to try to get my mind into something, some comedy or something to loosen me up so I'm not uptight. But finding little little ways that you're not just focused on it 24-7 because that can, you know, sometimes too much is is a detriment. So, uh, you know, that that's basically what we would do and try to help help the young guys in the team and try to get them to relax. You were MVP in 2004 of the of the Stanley Cup Finals, and then you're 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 in the likes, you know, other people who've done it: Wayne Gretzky, Mark Messier, Sidney Crosby, Mario Lemieux, Bobby Orr. I mean, describe what it's like to to be in a fraternity like that. I mean, that's that's an amazing group of players, and there you are, you're right there with them. When you say it like that, it's very flattering. 
Um, now that my career is over, it's something I look back on and, and it's pretty crazy. When I, when I first get the trophy, you, you win as a team and you don't really think much of the MVP. It, it's great, but you're, you can't wait to get with your team and celebrate the Stanley cup. It's, it's like the day or two later, you, I was sitting with my family. We had breakfast next morning and we had the, con, the they let you bring the consmite home with you or whatever trophy wins. So it was home with us the next morning and all my family was there and we were looking at the names and, and it just so happens that the way the names go on the trophy, the way mine worked out is under, it went Bobby Orr, Gretzky, and then me all in a row coming down. And uh, my dad was, you know, he couldn't, he couldn't fathom it either. He was, he was out of his mind. And, and uh, that's when it kind of hit me. But when you're playing, you, you know, you never, no one thinks of trying to win an MVP. You're trying to win the, the Stanley Cup. So it took a few days to kind of really uh, grasp. And, and as I get older, when people see you and they say, oh, you won the Conn Smythe, I'm like, wow, well, yeah, I guess, you know, I guess that was a, a pretty big thing. Yeah, I would say so. And you were born and raised in Canada. And I understand your father was a third generation lobster man. Did you ever think you'd follow in his footsteps and, and go into that line of business? Early on, he, he uh, I had to help out, um, you know, when uh, when I was young and especially on weekends when there's no school. Um, but getting the 3.45 a.m. wake-up call in the North Atlantic in early May, uh, sometimes there's snow flurries, um, <laughs> big big waves. It just never was for me. And, and to be honest, my dad was very uh, very helpful in trying to get me out of that. He, he knew that sports or hockey was a, maybe a, an opportunity to go get some schooling or get some college paid for, and, and he really helped me and, and sacrificed a lot uh, financially to get me out of there and, and – uh, I was able to go to Western Canada and kind of go to a private school that gave me an opportunity to, to, to further my education because of hockey. But uh, it was never, never something I loved. It was something I had to do, and I knew I would do it if, if that's what the family needed. But uh, I was lucky enough to have a father that really supported me um, doing something else. You know, I don't think people in the United States fully understand what hockey means to Canadians. So paint the picture for me. Uh, what does hockey mean to a Canadian? Well, you know, there's long winters and, uh, you know, there'd be people in northern Minnesota and um, northern Michigan, places like that would, would uh, understand that. But there's not a lot of other activities and hockey was a community thing. Um, every little town has a rink. So um, families get together. It's dark at four o'clock. Um, they get their hot chocolate. The kids are all playing. The moms and dads get to meet for the evening. You get to go on weekends. You get to go on road trips to, to tournaments and the families are together. It, it really gets you through these long winters frozen ponds on Saturdays and Sundays, we'd wake up and if it got dark, a father would pull the car up and put the lights on the, on the pond so we could play longer. It's just a fabric of how we grew up. And uh, when, when you have those long winters, Scandinavia, there's lots of great players in there, Russia, it, it's, it's kind of, it's an eight month thing and, and it brings the community together. And we, we always, you know, all your best buddies are doing that all day long. Yeah, the long winters, that's a great rationale for it. I never really thought about it that way. And you left home when you were 14 years old for a boarding school in Saskatchewan that had a renowned hockey program. Walk us through that decision. That had to be a big decision to, to leave that close-knit family and, and go to this boarding school. It was a crazy, crazy time. It was August. School started in September, and, and we got a call from a gentleman that kind of ran hockey schools in our, our home area, and he said, I got a call from the coach at Notre Dame and they'd, they'd be wondering if you would be interested in going out there. We had four weeks to decide. And uh, it was, I think that helped me because it was so quick. I didn't get time to think. And uh, my dad my dad said, if you want to come home, 
I'll fly you home at any time if it's not going to be for you. Um, so off I went. I, got, I had $40 Canadian, never been on a plane before, um, no cell phones. This is 1994. And uh, I landed in southern Saskatchewan. I got a taxi and told them where I'm going. And I ended up at this school. I had no idea. And uh, met my my best friend and a teammate for 14 years, Vincent LeCavier there. We won a Stanley Cup together, played in the Olympics together, did everything together. And we happened to be bunkmates and, and played on the same team for 14 straight years after that. I don't know why we met so quick and so early, but we did. And we kind of latched on. And um, next thing you know, hockey started. And once hockey started, both of us were, were only 14. We made the the team with older older players and we both kind of just felt at home once we got on the ice we were comfortable and we weren't homesick anymore we just this is where we belong and we were able to to make the team and, and do well on the team so it kind of i'm not sure how it would have went if we if we didn't make the team or weren't <laughs> a key key part of the team but it just seemed like everything felt normal after that and hockey was our our happy place and uh that place really made us grow up and mature and uh, like I said, my whole goal was to, to try to get a U.S. NCAA scholarship. That would have been a dream, and, and things just kind of happened from there. You know, your boarding school was pretty intense, as I understand it. From what you know, from what I've heard, you know, no janitors or kitchen staff. The the students did it all. What kind of impact did that have on you in your formative years? It's amazing when I look back. You know, as any 14, 15 year old would be, you're miserable when you're doing it. So one week you're on garbage duty, which is 6 a.m tractor that goes around the school getting all the garbage one week here on kitchen duty one week here on janitor duty and the 400 students shared the jobs and uh like i said you're in it together everybody's miserable but you do it with your buddies or your classmates or your roommates and uh all of a sudden a year goes by and you just want to get back and be with everybody and and you go through those things together it it really makes you grow and you create relationships that still last and i i just think it's where your, you know, your determination, hard work, um, perseverance, it all, it all starts at a young age. And to go through those experiences were uh, pretty you know, unique and I think mean, really helped me in the future. When was it, Brad, when you knew that you had the talent to be a professional hockey player? When did you actually say to yourself, you know what, I, I think maybe I can do this? When I was 17, I was picked for the under 18 national team for Team Canada, um, which is a big deal, obviously, in Canada when you pick for any national team. That was going into my draft year, and, and that kind of like perked me up and said, okay, if I'm, if they're watching me for this team, I must be doing something okay. I must be in the mix. And uh, we went over to Europe, and we won the UN Under-18 Championships over there. And it was a great experience to, to realize I can play with, you know, anybody around the world. It, it kind of gave you a little bit of a confidence, obviously, leaving there. And then the next year is a draft year. got drafted. I didn't get drafted as high as I would have liked. Um, I was still pretty pretty small at that time, uh, kind of started growing a little bit around there, but but it was still an unbelievable feeling to get drafted, but you knew there was still more work, but at least you knew you had a chance. You still had to put in the work and show them that you needed to be signed and sign a contract, make the team. But yeah, I think that, that first national team for Team Canada really gave me the belief that I could I could play with these guys. You know, you turned pro then when you were 18 years old and and what advice can you give to, to other leaders who are thrown on, onto the ice or, or whatever it looks like in their profession with people who have a lot more experience and skill than they do? I mean, you're 18 years old and you're going into this world where there's all kinds of wily veterans. I mean, how do you survive and, and thrive in a, in a new situation like that? 
you got to realize uh, there's going to be a lot of bumps and a lot of bad days. And they're not bad. I, I was still living a dream, but not everything's going to go right. And uh, you got to get up the next day. And I think, you know, for especially in sports, um, being, you know, try to be the first guy at the rink, try to be the last guy off the ice, first guy in the gym. You got to show your veterans that you're willing to, to put in the work that they've put in their whole career. And then they take you under the wing. I was so lucky when I was 19, 20, our captain was 40 years old. He had, he's a Hall of Famer. He had been through everything. He had never been to a Stanley Cup final. And he finally won with us. But I watched him and he was 40 years old. He was at the rink an hour before everybody even thought about being there. He was on the ice ahead of everybody. He was coming off the ice after. And I'm looking at him like, okay, I'm 19, 20. I, I better be doing this too. He's 40. Uh, I got way more energy than him. So I got to get out here and, and show him. And he ended up being a great mentor to me. He'd take me golfing all the time, had me over to the house for dinners. And without his leadership and mentorship, there's no, no way I would have felt comfortable in those situations in a locker room. If something did go bad, he was like a big brother. I'd look at him and he'd grab me and maybe go for a beer after and say, hey, listen, calm down. You, you, you got a whole career ahead of you. And he'd, he'd really put things into perspective for me and give, give me some of his experiences. And without him, you know, who knows where the path would have went. Yeah, we all need somebody to take us under, our, under their wings and, and, and help us, you know, learn how to get things done in, in, in any industry. What was his name, by the way, Brad? Dave Andrzejczyk's his name. Um, he had over 600 goals and over uh, 1,600 games played in the league, played for 22 years, and we finally won a Stanley Cup for him uh, when he was 42 years old. So that was an amazing time. What was that like when you two got together right after winning that Cup? I mean, here's this guy. He's been your mentor, and you obviously helped him get to where he wanted to go. We looked at him during that whole finals, and we kept thinking he had never been to a Stanley Cup final 22 years. And, and uh there's a bunch of us there at 23, 24 years old. We were a young team, and we're looking at each other like, God, this must be a lot harder than we're making it look because this guy's like, like he can hardly breathe over there. He's so nervous. He knows this is probably it. He's never been in the final. So to win it, see him lift the cup, and then, you know, in the locker room, we, we kicked everybody out at one point, and it was just the coaches and the players, and, and uh, we all kind of tackled him and jumped on him, and it was the first time we, he acted like a little kid and uh, he could let his guard down and not be that leader. And it was so cool to see. Because you're listening to this, I can tell you're the kind of person who wants to learn how to lead well. But there's a lot of companies out there who want to take that desire and charge you $500 or $1,000 or heck, even $20,000 to try and show you how to lead. That's just not right. If you want to be a better leader, I believe you deserve to have access to something that will truly help you, and it shouldn't cost a fortune. So I want you to go to howleaderslead.com and start my leadership class. It's really and truly free. And after you take this class, you're going to feel more confident in your role, and you'll be on your way to getting big things done with your team. Go check it out at howleaderslead.com. Brad, I have to tell you, you know, you, without a doubt, are one of the most competitive persons I've ever met in my life. You know, we've had the great privilege to, to play golf against each other, with each other, but you are, you are competitive. You know, has there ever been a time when you had to tone it down to, to play your best? Definitely when you want to get out and play your best, even keel, even keel's a, so much 
uh, a better way to go. And uh, the ups and downs sometimes when I was younger um, could get to you and you'd turn a, a two-game two uh, streak of losing or something going bad, you'd turn it into a five-six game because you just you couldn't control your emotions. Same thing the other way, you can't get too high. You'd turn a, a great five-game winning streak and it would end because you you get cocky or you, you, you lose focus. So I think, you know, learning how to, yeah, calm that. I think in the biggest part, hockey, you could go out and throw some emotion around with a hit or uh, some people fight or you could, you could kind of get that out. But learning to do that in golf is uh, the hardest thing is uh, how, to, how to calm down and, and not take everything so serious because uh, it, can, it can ruin a round. But for sure in hockey, that, that was something you had to learn at a young age that you can't do everything in one night. It's a long season. There's a process to things. You know, you've represented your country on five different occasions, not only at the World Cup, but also at the Olympics, playing for Team Canada. What'd you learn playing on the international scene? The Olympics was such a cool experience, not just for hockey, but to see all the other athletes. You know, you watch the Olympics like a fan like you would, and you see these people from all over the world. I had no, I just didn't study it, but I had no idea when I got to the Olympic Village how young some of these kids are. Um, there's 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds, or ski jumpers, figure skaters, all people from all over the world. And that's their, that's their pinnacle. And, uh, to see them and see the looks in their faces and, you know, us as pro athletes, it's a different thing. It's two weeks. It's a great feeling, but it's two weeks. You're getting pulled from kind of a brotherhood where you're growing a team for maybe six, seven years and your, and your team's back here and you get thrown in for two weeks and, you know, you want to win. And of course it's big, but to see the looks on these athletes' faces where they've put in their whole life for one event and it could be just one jump and that makes their whole, you know, their whole career to sit and talk with some of those, those athletes from around the world in the village was, that was the coolest thing for me to see all those uh, different athletes. Do you recall a story that really stands out when you think about, you know, being in the Olympics? The biggest thing in Canada was, I'll give you like, which was shocking. We played, Italy was the host. So we had to play Italy first and they get a team. But most of Italy were Canadian kids with dual passports that never could make it in NHL. And, you know, it wasn't much of a game, but during the game, all the parents of the Italian kids or basically Canadian kids were, were sitting with our parents asking if we'd all take pictures with them and maybe get one of our hockey sticks after the game and stuff like that. So to, to kind of go there as a pro athlete and play against a team that, they were just happy to be on the same ice and uh, play against Canada, but they're they're basic Canadians. But they they were more excited. To, could we hang out with you guys after? Could we go in your locker room and get some pictures, stuff like that? <laughs> so that's where the the professional athlete part of the Olympics gets. Uh, you know, it, it's a little different than the amateur side. But the like I said, talking to some of those athletes, uh, there was a figure skater that was like 14 years old from I forget which country, but I mean, she looked like. Looked like she was eight, and uh, she won a medal, and she was just as proud as you could be. And and uh, to realize that's like, that's probably the end of her career. Almost, she'd probably do it two or three more times, and that was it. Um, it was pretty amazing to see. Yeah, and you get to keep on going. You know, that's that's yeah. funny. There was no miracle on ice when Italy played Canada. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> you know, Brad. At what point in your career did you transition from being an individual contributor and a heck of a good one, by the way? Obviously, you know, to to being identified as a, as a leader on your team. Early on, when we won um, in Tampa, you know, I kind of thought I'd be back and I'll get five, six, seven more chances at this, and. 10 years went by before I got to another final. 
And that's when I was in New York and, and we had traded our captain that year, Ryan Callahan went to Tampa and we brought in Marty St. Louis. He was a good friend of mine and teammate of mine when we won in Tampa. So it was cool to, to get an old friend back in, in the, uh, in the lineup, but we lost our captain. I was one of the assistant captains. So that year I kind of was the de facto captain in the run. And, and it was a, it was a whole different feeling than, uh, being the 24 year old with looking up to a leader. I tried to remember what Dave Andercheck was doing for us and, and what he was helping us with and teaching us um, in that run with the young guys. And we, we faced some crazy adversity. We, we were down 3-1 to Pittsburgh, and Marty had lost his mom to a heart attack right before a game. And we came back and won that series, and Marty had the winning goal. Really galvanized our locker room, and uh, we went to the final. And we had a lot of young kids that gained a lot of experience. New York was magical. Trying to, trying to win a Stanley Cup in New York was uh, just amazing. We ran into a really good team, and we lost, but that's the first time I really had to take leadership on my, on my own shoulders. And, and, uh, I'll be honest, it's a lot tougher than just going out and playing because you had to play, but you had to kind of monitor the room all the time and, and, uh, make sure there's a lot of different personalities, 23 different personalities. There's a lot of little things that go into it. So it was an eye opener for me to, to realize how hard, and I have a lot of respect for people that did it over a whole career, uh, to be able to do both play your individual game and also take care of that locker room. Do you recall your biggest leadership challenge? I think any challenge, the first time you do it, is is getting up and and trying to talk to the room in a in a in a different way. Not your, hey guys, let's uh, get a dinner tonight. It's it's kind of a stern way, or we got to wake up kind of way. Or after a really tough loss, like in the playoffs, we're down three one, we lost. We got boot off home ice. Getting up and and trying to find what to say in the moment that that you know your teammates are going to feel is real not just someone talking for the sake of talking. I think that's the, the biggest challenge. And that was the, the hardest thing is I, I got to make this sound genuine. Um, I got to try to galvanize these guys and we got to go to Pittsburgh and regroup. And how do you make this sound genuine and, and get these guys to buy in? And that's, that's probably the biggest challenge. You know, I, you know, that that's a confidence thing also, but you have to get over that hurdle. You know, what gave you the most satisfaction making the assist or scoring the goal? I was always more of an assist guy. I love I love setting up my teammates. I mean, goals are great too. Don't don't get me wrong, but um, I think if if anybody that knew me and played with me, they'd always say I'd probably last second rather pass it than than put it in the net. And sometimes my coaches, I I drove them nuts doing that, but uh, it, it was just an instinct that I loved to do, and it, it worked out more than it it didn't. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's anytime you can help. A teammate, um, I, I just think it's a it's a great feeling to see they're looking at their face when they point at you after you set them up. It is a great feeling. So one of the challenges you had was you know, monitoring your desire to pass the ball. You kind of drove the coaches crazy because yes. you like making yeah, it was, I always had my first coach always like you got to be more selfish. You got to take the puck yourself, and you know, and it just was never in me. But I did learn to do a better job of that. Um, it also helped you be a better passer because if you were always passing, the defense knew that. So. You know, it took a while to get that in my head. You know, I remember talking to Magic Johnson, and he loved making the assist too, but he was still the same guy that could take over a playoff game and score 48 points and play center if uh, if Jabbar was yeah. out, of the, out of the game, you know. But you were a great scorer as well, you know. And speaking of scoring goals, almost 20 years ago, you set a record for the most game-winning goals in a single playoff season with seven goals. Tell us about that experience and, and what's it like to make that game-winning shot? Yeah, I mean, that that was the same year of the Stanley, uh, the Stanley Cup and the, the MVP. So 
if you want to talk about being in a zone, it was just a two month I was in a zone and uh, it seemed like for a while, every time I scored a goal, it happened to be a game winner. Again, great teammates, great line mates and timely goals. Um, there's sometimes you don't know why, but the puck comes to you and and then when you're in a slump, the puck you know bumps over your stick and goes the other way. And, and if, you're, if your mindset's not right and you're not feeling positive, other things will happen. And, and that run, everything just fell into place. But uh, again, you're just trying to help the team after the game, you know, the media is telling you you just broke a record and all that. But uh, that's, a, I guess, if there's records you want to break, you want to break them for game-winning goals because you're, you're winning and, and uh, doing something individual at the same time. So it feels good. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, in my research, I've heard you talk a lot about playing for John Tortorella. Uh, describe what the team culture was like before and after he showed up at, at Tampa Bay and his impact as a leader. He was the best coach I had by far with with getting a young team that was kind of a, a country club atmosphere down there in Tampa. I think a lot of players would come down and kind of play out their career, play some golf, go to the beach. And he knew right away he had to change that. And uh, the details he instilled in us um, from day one when he took over, and I was only 20 years old when he took over, but you know, your, your meetings, you were there 15 minutes ahead of time. You were there for breakfast way before anything had to be done in the locker room or your meetings, your, your video, your workouts, everything was done. And it was at a whole different level. Our training camps, uh, we came into training camp and it was, uh, I don't want to say military cause I don't want to disrespect the military, but he wanted it, that mentality. We were thinking about it a month before we were scared of it. So we overtrained, we were so ready for every training camp and he had a method to all this. And, uh, and our culture changed immediately. And when our culture changed, he always said, I want to make this where I can let you guys take over the room and let you guys, I can back off and let you guys be the, the, the guys that are going to do this. So I don't have to be barking at you all the time and, and on you all the time. And, and it was the best, best experience of seeing a, a really bad team. I think we had 18 wins. And then all of a sudden, three years later, we're in the, fi- uh, in the playoffs. And then four years later, we win the Stanley Cup. And we were... We were a well-oiled machine on 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 details and uh, how to how to be professionals, and uh, it changed really quickly. Was he the coach you enjoyed playing with uh, the most, or was there somebody else? Probably not the most enjoyable coach all the time, but because uh, he he was hard. Um, but you know, if, if you're comfortable, you're probably uh, usually if you're comfortable all the time, you're probably not winning uh, or, or playing your best. Um, he wanted you a little uncomfortable at all times. And, uh, sometimes it was very uncomfortable, but, uh, you know, that was his, his way of doing it. But when you look back at the end of the season and you win, or you had a good chance to win, you always say like, I'd rather have a chance to win and and be in the fight than, than, uh, than not. And he always had you in the fight. Yeah. You seems like the best leaders always create sort of a healthy dissatisfaction with the status quo. I mean, you know, they're, they're, they're always pushing you to take it to the next level, you know, and we all have to play on a team. What are the qualities of the teammates that you love playing with over the years? I mean, what, what, what did you really look for in a teammate? You know, you don't get to be leader all of a sudden. You know, you have to start out as a teammate. Yeah, I, I think I love, obviously, the unselfishness. And any good team that I was on, you know, I, I got to win twice. They were great teams. And I had probably three or four other teams that I would say were really good teams that had a chance to win. Um, and they all had something in common. We all got along. Everybody had a role. You know, the bad teams, there's always one or two guys that weren't involved, 
weren't invited to the team dinners or weren't invited to the golf events or, you know, it, it just seems like there was two or three people missing all the time and, and that never worked. Um, the teams we won, if we had a team dinner, everybody showed up. You didn't have to stay for three hours, but everybody showed up to it. Uh, the captain treated the fourth line player the same as he treated the first line player or the superstar. The goalie got treated the same as the third line. Everybody was equal and invited to the same things. We spent a lot of time on the road, you know, a lot of, a lot of time together. And uh, the best leaders had the, the wives involved and parties. And, you know, they wanted everybody to feel like you're, this is one big family. And when that, when that was clicking, those were always the best teams. You know, you played at, at, at Tampa for several years. You're, you became an icon there, you know. And then you're sent to Dallas in a blockbuster trade right before the trade deadline. And, and you know, sports are, are so unique where you can wake up one day and then have to pack up and move to play for another team. I mean, how did that play into your psyche? I mean, tell us about that. That was tough. That was the toughest day of my career. Um, I, I had been in Tampa eight years, drafted there and won there. So um, when you when I woke up the next morning to go to the airport, it was it really hit me like, okay, I'm done. I'm not, I'm not a Lightning anymore. Going to this new locker room, which, you know, is... It's intimidating because it's not your lock. You had all your your trainers knew your routines. I had my same seat on the bus. I had my, I went out on the ice same time. My warm up was the same. I had all these things, and now you're going in this new locker room. You, you don't know what's going on. So it's a huge adjustment. It's also a huge adjustment not being around your your best friends and teammates. But hockey's a great sport, and every sport would be the same. You get in a locker room, and they're the same guys, just different faces, and. They open open their arms to you, and and you start battling with them, and and you earn their respect, and you show them that you're there to win, and and everything kind of starts falling in. But the the initial 24 48 hours is is rough. It's not, uh, yeah. If I had one bad thing I can say about my career, I loved it. I was lucky, but that that one first trade is is a shock to the system for sure. Would it be fair to say it's almost like getting fired, or is that too strong? Yeah, probably it probably is because you, you realize the team that you love and battle for, they're trading you. Um, now there's other there's there's contracts and salary caps involved in that too, but I had a no trade clause, so I got to control it. Uh, and my agents like we can wait till the summer. And I'm, and my attitude was well, they don't want me. I don't if they don't if the ownership and general manager don't want me, then I I don't want I, I can't do this. And that was the way I looked at it. And uh, Luckily, I controlled it, so I got to go to a good team and a good organization. But you know, I just couldn't. I just didn't want to be there anymore if I knew they were trying to trade me and wait until next year. It didn't feel right. That's so similar to business because one of the major reasons why people leave and go to a different company in business is they don't feel appreciated. You know, and yep. it's very, very similar in both Tampa and Dallas. You experienced an ownership bankruptcy, and you're out there to play hockey, but. How tuned into the business component were you as it related to the franchise you were playing for? Well, really, really toned in because in Tampa, we won and we wanted to keep our team together and it started to fall apart because ownership was changing and that affects the type of players you can go out and get, trade for, free agents you can sign. And when you're one of the leaders of the team, you know exactly what's going on in that. When I went to Dallas, same things started to happen, which is a big reason why I uh, when I came to free agency, I wanted to go to New York because New York was not going to go bankrupt anytime soon. They're, they're very <laughs> stable, stable organization. So, but you're very, you know, I, I think maybe if you're young as a rookie and you're just happy to be there, 
But when you're one of the main parts of the team or you're in a contract negotiation, you really realize what the stress of a, of a bankruptcy or an ownership change is doing because you only have so many years to try to win. And, uh, you know, I, I just thought, you know, I'm wasting a year or two, three here waiting for ownership change and we can't get the best team on the ice. Maybe it's time to look somewhere else. We'll be back with the rest of my conversation with Brad Richards in just a moment. You know, I've gotten to talk to one other hockey legend here on Hal Leaders Lead, the great Mark Messier. And just like Brad, Mark really understands team dynamics at a level that few others do. I absolutely love his insights on how great leaders stay attuned to their people. The only way in a team sport to have success is to try to maximize the performance of each and every one of the people that are around you and make them believe that their contributions are absolutely necessary for any team success. And I think that's one element. The other element for me would be that you got to establish relationships that go further than just the game itself. In order to lead someone, they have to give you their permission and that permission has to be earned. And I think you earn it through developing relationships so you can tell them the truth and they don't take it personally. And so then you just start to foster those relationships. And the other thing I guess what I would say is that uh, you got to be willing to be completely uh, open, uh, completely transparent and who you are and what you stand for and your consistency and your personality. Uh, you don't waver in good times and bad. I mean, you're completely exposed and vulnerable and you got to be doing the right things consistently. But I think you, when you do that, it gives everybody a sense of calm around you. Make sure you listen to my entire conversation with Mark, episode 13, here on How Leaders Lead. You know, you win your first uh, Stanley Cup uh, with Tampa in 2004 and your second in 2015 when you're a Chicago Blackhawk. You know, that's a long time. That's 11-year drought of not yep. winning a final. And, you you know, you win very early on in your career and you think this is probably going to happen all the time. How did you stay positive and optimistic when you kept falling short? Yeah, I, like I said earlier, I thought, I thought I'd have six or seven tries at it. Um, the the 10th year drought in New York we went to the final and when I when I signed in Chicago they were one of the best teams they had won two championships in four years before that and that getting back to the final really even though we lost it really reminded me of how fun it was I had been to two conference finals before that in between but the final just it's just so big and it got me back into those juices and then I got lucky to I signed in Chicago and we went right back to the final and we won but sometimes I think if you're not getting there you you forget how great it is you're trying but but getting to the final and and having only about 6 7 weeks off I was ready to get back to the final I know it's a long road but it, it's just the bet you're on the stage you're on your sport's biggest stage for 2 weeks and uh, there's nothing like it for us you know, there's this viral video out. You probably have seen it because I know you're on top of what's going on in sports. But Giannis of the NBA's uh, Milwaukee Bucks responds to a question of his most recent uh, season and, and the failure that they had uh, when they didn't win the championship is basically the favorite. I mean, everybody thought the Bucks were going to get there this year. And he responded by saying, there's no failure in sports, just steps to success. What's your take on that? If you want to look at it as a failure, you, you could probably mope for the offseason. Um, I had a really tough year in New York, and 
one year and, and uh, it was with my coach Tortorella and the season ended terribly, but it was probably the hardest I ever worked in the summer and I ate perfect and it kind of, I learned a lot about eating even better than I thought I was eating. I learned a lot about training even better than I thought I was training. It's amazing what you can learn and, and put back into what you're doing if you if you do it the right way. And I, I that's how I would take what he's saying right there as it's another step to get better and, and uh, maybe he'll win two more championships because of this instead of one or, you know, or whatever it goes. But there's so many things that you can always do better and sometimes those things can, can knock you back into that thought process. You know, you went to the mountaintop twice. You had two finals wins, but in 2014, you, you, you lost to L.A. when you were on the Rangers. What do you think about most? Do you think about the two victories or the loss? <laughs> uh, the loss still bites, that's for sure. I mean, winning in New York would have been, would have been unbelievable. Um, and we lost three. Three of our four losses were in overtime, which is unheard of. You'd think one of the overtimes would go your way and we'd still be playing. But if I didn't get back... The next year in Chicago, um, that loss would have been a little harder, but to get back in Chicago next year and then win it, really, you know, to have two championships, and and uh, I, I think that kind of took a little heat off. But uh, there's not a day goes by where I, I see a New York Ranger logo or, you know, where we hang out in the summer and play some golf. If someone's not talking with the Rangers, not a day goes by. I'm like, wow, that if just could have pulled that one off. Um, but that's that's life. You always, you always want more. <laughs> yeah, you'd like to have that ticker tape uh, parade in <laughs> yeah, New York. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I know Mark Messier. Love that one. You know. Oh yeah. Now I, I understand that if if you win the Stanley Cup, and you mentioned this a little bit earlier, every player on the team gets a day with the trophy, so you actually get to have the trophy for a day. You've experienced that twice now. What were those days like, and what'd you do with the trophy? So I went back home to. Murray Harbor, Prince Edward Island, little town. And because it's so remote, um, the cup flies in on, on commercial flights and you just go to the airport and meet the cup keeper and you go. The flights are very scarce there. So I was lucky to have it for like 40 hours both times. So I had two days basically. So I was able to do a public day with, with all the town and parades and we prayed it through on my dad's fishing boat through the town. And uh, a lot of people would show up from all over the island and the cup would be there for pictures, and then we'd bring it to the hospital, and we'd do some stuff like that. And then the other day would be all private day. We'd go in the boats and the, and the rivers where we jump off and jet ski. We'd put a life jacket on the on the Stanley Cup. I'd take it jet skiing. And, um, <laughs> I love it. There's Yeah, and then we'd have a band that night at the rink I grew up in, and we'd invite kind of like a wedding type of atmosphere. You invite like 150 of your best friends and live band and you know, the guy that wins it always has to go up and take over the mic and, and take over the show. So that's, that's part of the, part of the deal. But I, uh, I wish we so would have been uh, buddies <laughs> yeah. and, uh, you know, playing some golf back then. I would have loved to have been invited to that party. That'd be awesome. Oh yeah. You know, Brad, this has been so much fun and I want to ask some more with my lightning round of questions. Are you ready for this? Yep. All right. What's one word others would use to best describe you? Probably quiet and, uh, reserved. What would you say is the one word that best describes you? I think very loyal. If you could be one person for a day beside yourself, who would it be and why? Maybe Jack Nicholas in the 70s, <laughs> winning all those, all those golf tournaments. What's something only Canadians know about Canada? Poutine, maybe. <laughs> well, explain that to us. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> Poutine is uh, French fries, gravy, and melted cheese curds. <laughs> and uh, sometimes a little bit of bacon bits, but uh, it's it's a delicacy up there. And that's not what you were eating when you were learning how to eat no, healthier. That no, was not, no, not it. 
What do you enjoy most about also speaking French? Well, it was it was great to be able to learn two languages. Um, I think the funniest thing is if you're on a, a plane in Canada where everybody's bilingual and someone's talking about you, you can play dumb and, and uh, know everything they're saying. Uh, that's, a, that's a hidden, hidden <laughs> Okay, <treat. laughs> now I want you to give me that same answer in, in French. Si tu es sur avion au Canada, puis tu veux écouter un autre person parle de toi, c'est facile. That's great. I've never done that on the show. That's fantastic. <laughs> that, my French is a little broken now, but you don't know no, that. That's pretty good, though. <laughs> you, you, your, your wife is from Australia. What's your favorite part of vis about visiting that country? Uh, there's lots. I, I love the country, the, the beaches, the, the people, the attitude. Um, and as you would know, I love the golf down in the sand belt. What's been the most nerve-wracking moment of your playing career? As you enter Game 7s, Game 7 days where it's do or die, um, and one of them was to win a Stanley Cup in home ice, so that was that was the most nerve-wracking day. Who's the best hockey player you ever played with or against? Uh, Mario Lemieux, best player I ever played with. If I turned on your radio in your car, what would what would I hear? Most likely Pearl Jam. I thought you might say Drew Holcomb, and we'd be, uh, yeah. we'd oh, be singing right. yeah. gratitude. You well, know, now, fly, now, now that's like coming. That. What's something about you few people would know? Oh, I can't say I speak French. I don't know. I'll, I'll say I got a double eagle before a hole in one. <laughs> that's a good one. <laughs> well, that's the end of the lightning round, okay? So okay. You're, you're off the hook right. there, okay? Good, yeah, that, you, that's a tough You started one. a foundation called uh, Richie's Rascals for children's cancer patients in Tampa. Tell us about it. Unfortunately, at a very young age, I had my first cousin and neighbor die of a, a brain tumor. He was five years old when he got diagnosed and died pretty quick after. And, and I always... When I'd watch Hockey Night in Canada, you'd see players with, with sick children or, or uh, cancer kids or different, all different types of things go to the games. And, and when I made it, I always thought back to that. And uh, we created this uh, foundation where we, we bought a suite and we, we gutted it and turned it into like a playground at the rink. Um, because not every kid that you bring in is going to be a hockey fan but they're going to be excited to be there and see the people. And we put a goal horn in the middle of it. So when we scored, they could push the button and the red light would go. We had PlayStations in there. We had arts and crafts and they could put pictures of the, their night all over the walls. And, and we made it kind of like a really safe haven for them when they went to the games. And uh, we called it Richie's Rascals. And we, we worked with the Children's Cancer uh, Center in, in Tampa and, and uh, they would help us bring families that needed needed a break. And, and sometimes it would be the siblings and parents of, of the sick children that because the siblings weren't getting much time with their parents and we'd bring them in and and uh i'd meet them after the games and and uh it meant a lot to me i'm getting goosebumps talking about because i met so many great kids and uh, and unfortunately you know not all the kids ha have made it but uh, some have and and years later when i was playing on other teams that, and warm up they'd be down with their sign i'm a richie's rascal and and oh, waving wow. and, and <laughs> i'd recognize them and and uh it was very very cool, and uh, obviously, I'm not playing anymore. And um, now we've got we've got a whole uh, center back home in my hospital named after my cousin um, back in Prince Edward Island for the same idea. We make them comfortable when they're getting the treatments and uh, hockey themes and and all that stuff, so they can not feel as intimidated when they have to go do those things. That's great. That's great. You know, we talked about your dad earlier, and and I know he recently passed away from ALS. What did that experience teach you, Brad? 
Well, we all hear about ALS, but until it until it hits you, I had no idea how how nasty of a disease it is. Um, I also had no idea how unselfish my my dad was until he went through that because he he never complained once. He never uh, never wanted to be anything about him. He kept everything everything very close to the, to his chest. He didn't he didn't want his children or grandchildren knowing what he was going through. But I can only imagine. Uh, what he was going through um, and uh, you know every day you're learning from your your parents and and I, I kept learning till the end that's for sure you know what a great role model for sure and and what a treat it had to be for him to see you play hockey for your entire career and Brad you retired from the NHL in 2016 how are you staying involved in the game and and what are your future aspirations if any is it's coaching or becoming a GM on the on the horizon I tried a little bit when I was living in New York still. I, I worked with the Rangers for four years um, in an advisory role. What I learned, I think, is if you're going to get into that, you got you got to really go all in. We moved down to Florida. I have young kids. Uh, my son's on travel hockey now. And I just thought at this time, it's it's uh, I'm going to have more fun being around him and my girls for a little bit. But uh, at the same time, I just turned 43. I, I got to keep my mind moving a little bit. And uh, I'm always open to to getting back into it in a certain capacity. But I think, like I said, I think if you want to do it and want to get fulfilled with it, you, you got to really put the time in. And I just wasn't prepared to, to go all in at, at that point. How are you moving into the business world? I know you're focused on your family and, and what's been the biggest challenges you've, as you've had to navigate this transition, because we all go through transitions. Yeah, I think the biggest thing for me is uh, the structure. There's no routine anymore. There's no schedule. I was told what to do since I was 14 years old. Uh, wake up, go to school, go to practice, whatever it was. NHL, you, you had to be here, the bus, the plane, everything's leaving. And and uh, you're on autopilot. And you just kind of woke up and you knew your day all the time. Now, you know, you're waking up and, you know, there's some days you don't have anything on the books. I try to keep as busy as possible. But that's been the biggest transition. I think I'm learning how to handle that more. And I'm also... I think, as you know, through golf and, and through meeting people in retirement, I am starting to to see different pathways, maybe in business or opportunities to to go into different things other than hockey, meeting great people like yourself or mutual friends we have. I've had lots of conversations and, you know, I'm not rushing into anything, but it is interesting to to pick brains of, of some of the great leaders of the world in business and, and see how they did things. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm excited what the future holds. I still want to... I still watch hockey every night and try to stay in touch with a lot of GMs and, and scouts and keep that open. But uh, I also love love the opportunity maybe to do other things too. Yeah, well, you know, you're you're very young and you've got that opportunity to to pursue that career. But I, I think I envy the fact that you can spend this time with your your family and you're doing that. Mm. I think that's yeah. good on you, as as they would say in Australia. <laughs> yeah. You know, I also know you're a, a minority owner in Untuck It. Now I know why your shirts are always untucked. You know, you're not just trying to be cool. What, what's your role on that team? When I was in New York, um, I was their their spokesperson or whatever, and it was it wasn't doing that well. And Chris Riccobono, who who now has become very successful, we we got another thing called Greatness Wins with Derek Jeter and Wayne Gretzky, also um, clothing line. And you know, it was kind of a we're in the need of a push here. We're we're not. I don't know if running out of money is the right way to put it, but it was kind of, and I said, well, listen, don't bother paying me. Let's just run it into 
um, ownership in the company and I'll, I'll keep trying to help and, and do stuff. And that was kind of the decision me and my agent made back then. And, and now uh, the company's grown and, and it's been a lot of fun to to learn and, and see what Chris has done with that. And, and now I, I've, I've uh, been involved in Greatness Wins and trying to help them uh, actually get into some of the golf shops and they're making a golf clothing line. And, and uh, so that's been fun also. Um, learning a little bit of and what he's let me in, in, in learn in that um, business. But uh, yeah, it, it's been a lot of fun. And, and I, I do have to wear the untucked shirts to try to <laughs> try, try to sell the brand. Now, this Greatness Wins is creating athletic wear for the modern athlete. And you've teamed up with uh, Gretzky and Derek uh, Jeter. What, what are these two guys like as business partners? Derek, obviously, I, I don't know him that well, but, you know, his... his his leadership and his uh, focus and, and what he's going to do, you know, he, he doesn't do anything just for the sake of doing it. And I think that's why Chris uh, Riccobano chose him to be the face of it because he knows he's going to go all in. Um, he, has, he just has that type of personality. And obviously being a, a New York Yankee and, and multiple uh, world championship winner, world series winner, um, doesn't hurt your brand, um, obviously. And, and Wayne, Wayne Gretzky, the great one, speaks for himself. When you have a name, greatness wins, and you can add the great one. They're great ambassadors, and they have great stories to tell. And uh, I, I'm just happy they let me tag along. Yeah, well, you add a heck of a lot, I'm sure. And uh, last question for you, Brad. What's one piece of advice you've given to someone who wants to be a better leader? What's the most important bit of advice? I would always say that you have to take truth and honesty. Um, you need it, and you have to take it the best way possible. A lot of truth and honesty was told to me over the years, and I wish when I was younger I would have handled it better. As I get older, I realize if you can't handle the truth or can't accept the truth in what you're doing and how you're performing, you're just not going to get better because you'll find excuses. You'll find ways to ignore it or, oh, it's not, not me, it's someone else. Or Once you look yourself in the mirror and, and accept um, being told the truth all the time, you'll, you'll get better all the time. You know, I've done probably 150 podcasts and nobody's ever provided that answer but that's that's a great insight for everybody to listen to and mm -hmm. uh yep. you know it's uh been a lot of fun having this conversation with you brad i've i've, I've always admired you in the way you attack everything and uh it, there's a reason why you you are a champion you know i know brad pretty well and Brad's never going to be the loudest guy in the room. But you know what? His strength and resilience as a leader comes through loud and clear. And he walks the talk. I just love how he isn't afraid to do the hard work and face the hard truths. And then trust that effort and draw on it as a source of confidence in tough moments. Now listen, you don't have to be a hockey player to apply that lesson to your life. This week, ask yourself, where do I dig in and do the hard work? Where do I need to accept a hard truth so that I can improve? Put in that effort today. That way, down the road, whenever you face a difficult situation or you're under lots of pressure or you just need to flat out execute, you're going to have so much more confidence because you can trust you've done the hard work and you've prepared for the pressure. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders trust the hard work they put in. Coming up next on How Leaders Lead is our best of quarter two episode, where we pull out some of the greatest wisdom from the last three months and highlight the best takeaways for you. Like this one from Annie Young Scrivener, 
the CEO of Wella. I think my first lesson was to really appreciate people's work. And to understand that I wasn't going to be the smartest person in the room, but what I could do is to learn best practices from each of them. Also find out what was important for them and then galvanize the learning so that together the team could achieve because they were each acting as individual versus as team. We had a ton of fun. We won every single district contest and those early lessons have imprinted me forever. I'm telling you, it's a lot of fun and it's chock full of great insights. So be sure to come back again next week. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader that you can be.